You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm Heard re- you played a rock show in Butte. I'm recovering from my rock and roll road trip over to Butte, Montana. Which, for which you missed UFC 192, well, as, as I understand by it. By missed, you mean I didn't watch it live at your house. I, I did, in fact, watch it, just not as it occurred. Yeah, no, got to play that rock show in Butte. You know what else is that you I You guys man- get signed to a record contract I, as a result I of that? Managed, yeah, yes. I managed to uh, avoid spoilers, so I was able to enjoy it uh, in in an organic fashion. Yeah. Organically. Was it, did you find it difficult to avoid spoilers? Did you have to rearrange your entire life? Well, you just can't look at your phone is okay. the only thing. You can't go on the internet or look at Twitter or, you know, social media, which if I hadn't been in a terrible, dirty Butte, Montana bar that had a wood stove in it, uh, might have been hard. But since I was preoccupied <laughs> by, uh, some stuff that was happening, I did, uh, manage to, to hold off. When no. you say some stuff that was happening, what you mean is, what you told me earlier was that you walked into the bar where you guys were going to play and there was a toothless old man getting a hand job yep. on a couch. Sex act. There was a sex act occurring in the bar when we walked in. Now, here's what I find interesting and what I would like our listeners to note is what you said about that was that you found this sex act surprising yes. when you saw the person who was receiving the hand job. Yeah, this didn't look like a dude who you would think would get a hand job in public. What kind of dude does that look like to you? You're looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was an old man. This guy was like in his seventies, and uh, so he had he stopped had caring. noticeably missing teeth. Okay, and had uh, nothing to lose, is what I'm hearing. Why not? Yeah, no, he was definitely willing to lay it all out on the line, so to speak. Okay, but uh, I'm just saying it wasn't a fashion show. Sage well, Northcutt wasn't sitting over there getting a hand job. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, and this was somebody who presumably comprised your audience at the Butte Bar. So. Yes. He made up some notable percentage of the audience because <laughs> we did not play to a to a large group. Maybe what appreciative, we're really... Appreciative, though. We played to a small but appreciative group. Yeah. Uh, would you describe them as a satisfied group? Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds like a loaded question considering <laughs> the uh, anecdote we just relayed here. But, yes, they were fully satisfied by the end of the night. <laughs> nice. Spent, you might even say. <laughs> Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one... Alexander Gustafson went out there and made Daniel Cormier a better fighter, a better father, and a better man on Saturday at UFC 192. And this is the thanks that he gets. And in round number two, which is more bullshit? Johnny Hendricks missing weight or Tyron Woodley maybe getting a title shot because of it? We discourse. And in round number three, seriously, are you motherfuckers really going to put me in a position where I have to root for good things to happen to Ryan Bader? Really? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week, Ben, comes to us from Tobias Jackson. And he writes, why does Sage Northcutt annoy me so much? Discourse, as two words, D-I-Z-Z space C-O-O-R-Z, 
discourse. So we're just getting real liberal with this thing, huh? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say Sage Northcutt uh, annoys Tobias Jackson because Sage Northcutt is a 19-year-old Christian who looks like he should be in in sync. Okay. So not, that, that saying, alone, that's enough I'm for you. I'm not saying whether or not that's right or wrong that that person annoys Tobias Jackson, but that is my guess. All right. Uh, I don't disagree with you there. I also, though, I, I, I think that part of it is you look at him right now and it seems like both in life and in the UFC, he has been dealt kind of an uncommonly good hand. And I know that I'm sure he's worked very hard. Obviously, he's he's gained some skills here, so it's not like he just rolled in there and decided to uh, beat up some dude in the UFC. That's not something that just anybody can do. He obviously uh, put in the time and the effort to get where he is here. But I think it always annoys people, or not always, it always annoys a certain kind of person when they look at this guy and be like, okay, the UFC has rolled out the red carpet for this 19-year-old who hasn't really beat anybody or done anything yet. Um he was obviously born with some genetic advantages that help him both in the marketing and uh, pro-fighting categories. And he's just super happy and positive about everything. Some people, A certain kind of person is going to be enraged by that every time. Yeah, and can I tell you that that fact alone puts me totally on board with Sage Northcutt? Because can you imagine how much it would suck... For all these tough fighter dudes out there and a certain percentage of tough fighter dude MMA fan to either get beat up by Sage Northcutt or to watch Sage Northcutt beat people up. So many people are going to hate this dude. <laughs> and I have to admit, I kind of love that. Like, I'm not a, I'm not what you would call a Tebow guy, but Sage Northcutt kind of seems like he has the potential to be the Tim Tebow of the UFC. Like, some people are just going to hate him and other people are going to just love the shit out of him i wonder to what extent he realizes that when i look on his twitter and see him posting a picture of him right after his win in the octagon and the only message along with it is super excited for church today or something like something along well, those lines yeah, let's, let's, or when he's posing with talk. joel austin's book that yes. he's he's really he happy to, he went to a super church it appeared and noted maybe, christian shyster joel austin maybe got the book signed by joel austin or just bought the book Seemed uh, like he had met Joel Osteen. But then did you see that Paige Van Zant replied to that to say that she had also been there and that they missed each other, smiley face? Are these two meant to be? That I was just thinking, how long before Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zant get together and start producing the master race? Like, whatever the next evolution of humans is, they are the link. So the rest of us, <laughs> our time, our days are numbered before the Northcutt Van Zant babies become our new overlords well one thing about that new master race they're gonna be some corny sons of bitches yes, they are yes a little bit cheesy yeah a big full house will return a big return <laughs> for full house you know but they do have the opportunity to be as it has been described in, in a seinfeld episode one of those brother and sister couples where they were well, that, yeah that was my second thought I was like they should those two should be a couple if they're not related. They they might want to get one of those 23andMe genetic uh, tests done just to be sure there, though. Because, yeah, that's the one where just our impulse toward biodiversity should tell them to breed with other people. Just to mix up the gene pool a little bit. Um, 
is is there any i mean i guess i'm i guess there there is a unimaginable outcome where a 19 year old in the ufc is not super annoying but <laughs> i feel like if you are a 19 year old in the ufc maybe a 19 year old who is not vitor belfort odds are pretty high right if you are an american 19 year old that's cynical old with dudes the gifts like that us allow you to be in the ufc that like you're going to be pretty annoying to us maybe to other 19 year olds people they'll, think. they'll think it's awesome Maybe so? to the younger, maybe to the 16-year-old fan base, he seems somebody that they can relate to. I think, though, here's the, the last thing I want to bring up before we must inevitably move on to other topics. Are we just doing the thing again that we do, that we always do, where this guy gets brought in, he's beat a handful of people that you never heard of, then he gets set up with an opponent specifically designed, like hand-picked by the UFC for him to beat up on. The yes. dude misses weight by a mile, for one thing. Comes in there, uh, falls down, for one thing, to, to set off the fight-ending barrage of blows. Says Northcott finishes him off. Uh, the dude, Francisco Trevino, shoves Herb Dean twice, which I don't know how, as of this recording, I have not heard Dana White in an outrage cutting him the way he did when Jason High did that, and Dana White didn't even see it. Said he didn't need to see it before cutting that dude. Anyway, and obviously we know he saw Sage Northcutt's fight, but I think we're doing the thing again. Yeah, no, we are. And we know where this leads, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, if we're, let's segue now from our analysis of Sage Northcutt's looks to our analysis of his fighting where he, he seemed like he, he obviously beat up what Francisco Trevino is that yes. the guy's name that he fought? A guy who did in fact fall down. Uh, and the dude who you are right appeared that he was brought in there simply to lose to Sage Northcutt and also get elbowed right in the back of the head by Sage Northcutt a couple of times. These things happen uh, in MMA. Which just reminds you once again that that's a, a stupid and unenforceable rule. Uh, but yeah, yeah, like Sage Northcutt isn't suddenly going to go out there with uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, right? Like he's like you're looking at he's probably you're going to try to build him up. And that does rub some people the wrong way because that's not necessarily how the UFC has historically done business. Like, this is kind of a new phenomenon that the Sage Northcutt slash Paige Van Zant slash Conor McGregor's of the world get built up into stars. Like, the thing that the UFC normally does is put Rashad Evans out there with Ryan Bader in his first fight back in two years or to get a, a, a prospect that they think might be good and to throw him out there with somebody who 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 is a stiff test? I guess you're not gonna you're just gonna act like Rashad Evans didn't totally kick Sean Salmon in his face back when Rashad well, Evans was a, that that's that was a different situation though because that he was a tough winner. Okay, that, those okay. rules there, always apply. There to tough you go. Winners. Okay, like fine. remember Diego Sanchez in his first fight, like literally beat a hole in that guy's face. I don't remember the guy's name, but like he beat him, I think, with elbows on the ground. And later it turned out that the dude had to have surgery because. Uh, Diego Sanders had literally pounded a hole into his skull, into like the front of his skull. The dude made like three grand or something like that. <laughs> so well, yeah, tough winners have always gotten a couple of warm-up fights. But like normally if, if somebody comes in, uh, sans tough and, and is a, a hot prospect. Now, I don't know what would happen if, if that person was 19, cause this is sort of uncharted waters, uh, at least during the modern era. But like they would get, they would get like a litmus test fight where we would see how good they legitimately were. Right. They didn't get a cakewalk against, you know, Francisco Trevino. Right. And so then we're going to get into that argument again where, especially, uh, if you're going to compete in the lightweight division, the most talent rich division in all of MMA, I would argue, uh, and probably in the UFC as well, you know, you're going to have a bunch of dudes who see this guy as a walking meal ticket. 
and are jumping up and down volunteering to fight him. Uh, and then when the UFC doesn't want to make one of those fights, then you're going to get the accusations that the UFC is protecting this dude. Uh, and we're going to, again, have this same conversation about to what extent the promoter should be involved in, in molding the molding and shaping the career of these guys via matchmaking. Right. And the good thing is, if you're Sage Northcutt, you're in the lightweight division, so you could legitimately have like 15 of these fights, right? <laughs> you could fight 15 different Francisco Trevinos before you have to fight somebody tough because there's like, what, there's like 5 million lightweights signed to the UFC. Currently. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Morty Bingle. I assume that that is a nom de plume. You don't think that the Mama Bingle out there? Maybe is? I don't know. Maybe so it's maybe that is maybe it's my Morty boy Bingle's Morty Mortimer Sebastian Bingle. He writes. So the UFC finally addressed the Belfort TRT cover up of 2012 and simply said, "Nope, that didn't happen." Is there even a reason to discourse on this, or are they just saying stuff? Yeah. Now this one came from uh, Dave Scholler, uh, UFC's PR guy. Uh, after UFC 192 seemed like, you know, he they had clearly planned for this to be something that they were going to have to address and waited all the way till now to address it. And I find that his wording of it careful, uh, careful, but then, but also just saying stuff because the, what he says here where he says, I think one of the things to keep in mind with this particular topic is that any suggestion or inference that there was a cover up in regards to that was categorically false. Um, that's all fine and good. But that doesn't go anywhere to telling us what actually happened. Because That's the you careful part of it. You can't just say this because we know something happened because there's a paper trail. Right. But see, there's, I think here is where we have to, like, just saying, like, hey, that there was no cover up. It depends what our threshold for cover up is. Because definitely there was some information that they did not want people to have and even threatened people who they accidentally gave that information to, not to disseminate it. They did not want this information out there. Uh, and at the same time, I think because of the nature of that information, they can they probably feel like they can hide behind medical privacy issues and say, like, well, yeah, we didn't want uh, the guy's private medical test results out there because that's that would be irresponsible and possibly illegal of us to go around emailing that stuff. I think that's where we get into the question of what constitutes a cover-up. Right. Well, if you're going to tell me that there was no cover-up when we know that you got a lab result showing that Vitor Belfort had testosterone levels higher than the legal limit, and that we know that there was a response from the UFC that Lawrence Epstein emailed a bunch of people to threaten them with legal uh, action if those if that lab report became public, and then we know that Vitor Belfort fought John Jones three weeks after that, you have to tell me what happened because we know that that this lab report existed. We know that you knew about it and threatened people over it. And we know that Vitor Belfort fought three weeks later. So if there was no cover up, then you have to explain how those three things happened. Ideally, a real sports organization well, would probably explain or, that. Or there was a cover up, right? Well, I, I think that in one hand, I think it's smart of them to hide behind well, hey, the TRT era was crazy, wasn't it? No one really knew what was going on. It, these were confusing times. Yeah, it's smart, but also Like we were all college sophomores just experimenting out there. Right. We didn't know what was going right, on. They had already You give a guy a handjob on a Mar couch. <laughs> Jesus. They had already fired Nate Marquardt, right, for TRT, for being over the legal limit and having his fight called off. 
And Chael Sonnen had already also tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone after the first Anderson Silva fight. So to come out and be like, oh man, TRT in 2012, we didn't even know what that was. Nobody, it was crazy, man. Everyone was experimenting. Like, that's bullshit. That we is all already knew what it was. Yes. And I think that uh, the thing that you keep coming back to is, I like we were talking before about why the UFC hadn't said anything about this and how it seemed like you had a, a fairly... Uh, not like you were going to get completely off this way, but you could kind of get a little bit of leeway if you followed this path by just saying, look, we screwed up back then. We're, we decided that, that was uh, our mistake. That's one of the reasons why a couple years later we signed up with USADA. We don't do this stuff anymore. It's out of our hands. It's, these are different times now. It was confusing back in the TRT era, whatever. You can say that, but the thing that the UFC seems like it can never, ever say is we were wrong and we're sorry. Never. No, they never if, say that. If the UFC has any corporate policies, that's the one. <laughs> never admit that you were put wrong. John Jones in there with a guy you know is juiced up on testosterone. Let him almost get his arm broke, and you're not you're not sorry to anybody. It was it was just hey, it was a confusing time. And the same thing when uh, that whole thing with Kung Lee, right? When the UFC acted as its own regulator, did its own drug testing, said Kung Lee tested positive for HGH, suspended him for a year, kind of rung that bell, and then when Issues arose with the way that they handled the testing, where they did it, and just the the whole protocol there. Eventually, when the UFC finally found that its position was untenable, it lifted the suspension, but never said, like, we're sorry for calling Kung Lee a dope. Like, basically left that implication out there that mm, we still might think that he's a doper, but we can't suspend him anymore. So, fine, here you go. Like, it can never just say, like, we made a mistake, which you're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Come on, man. Next question this week comes to us from Reese Burgess. He writes, let's all take a moment of silence to pay respect to the masterful mullet of one Ali Bags. Now let's please discuss the plight of Joseph Benavidez after his victory this past weekend. So yeah, Ben, uh, Joe Benavidez goes out there and gets a unanimous decision win against Ali Bagutinov in a flyweight fight on the main card at UFC 192, uh, which is, which is a good win for, for Joey Benavidez, uh, and now he he has he's won four fights in a row, but like he's kind of now in. Well, I guess you would flip it and say Alexander Gustafson is sort of in Joseph Benavidez territory, and we'll talk more about Gustafson obviously in round number one. But like Benavidez, he's already lost to uh, Demetrius Johnson twice, so you know stringing together four wins is awesome. But he's still he's still going to have to to do a lot before he gets another shot at the at the flyweight title. Well, I think you're right. We'll talk more about this later, but I think it's different when you've lost twice to the same champion rather than Gustafson, who has lost twice to two different champions. Like, when you've lost twice to the same champion, then I think that creates a real roadblock for you. That Especially in that division where, on one hand, you have kind of a lack of, of depth and uh, exciting challengers that people want to see, and he's one of the few guys that people know, he has some personality, and he can be a fun fighter to watch. Uh, and at the same time, you feel like, we can't do this again. We just got to do something else here. And this fight was not necessarily a, one of his best performances. I mean, he won. It wasn't that, that great of a fight. He got booed and had to do the, like, a toned-down version of the ally, Aquinta, are you booing me? You better not fucking boo me uh, to the crowd, which, you know, that never works. It's never like the boos just stop when you do that, when you point out to the crowd that what you have just done is very difficult. You're totally right, and it's still not going to work. 
Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that a fight like that, it just leaves him kind of in that, if you want to make other comparisons to other fighters and other weight classes, that Misha Tate territory, where you're right there near the top. There's really not a whole lot higher you can go until the UFC is ready to give you another crack at the same champion. And in the meantime, you're just going to have to keep fighting some of the toughest people out there, like the other people who have been beaten for the championship or, or who are trying to get there. Like, you're going to have to fight the really, really tough competition just to stay where you are. And there's no promise that it'll move you forward anytime in the immediate future. And as for Ali Bagotinov, uh, he had run off 11 wins in the ro- in a row, including three in the UFC. And I just want to point out, including one victory at an organization, well, many victories at an organization called Fight Nights, but one event with the tagline, the fights with and without rules. Oh, okay. That was in 2011. So... <laughs> Uh, kind of a throwback look, I guess, from Fight Nights. But he had, he, so he had won a bunch of wins. He had won a bunch of fights in a row. He ends up losing to Demetrius Johnson at UFC 174. Still tests positive for the EPO. Which got mentioned a lot during the UFC 192 broadcast. Did it? Yeah. Okay. The version that I watched, uh, I guess I will say that I was not listening to the commentary. The, um, full disclosure, the version that I watched had, uh, commentary in a foreign language. <laughs> okay. Let's just say. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, he has lost now back-to-back fights, Demetrius Johnson and Joe Benavidez, after serving his suspension for uh, EPO. So I don't know, his time as as a number one contender probably over. Maybe he's in a worse position now than Joe Benavidez, considering the drug failure and back-to-back losses. Well, often the case when you lose fights that you're in a worse position than the guy who won the fight. Just, Shut up. Just saying. Shut up. Uh, next question this week comes from Damian Duncan. He writes, how is it that the thug Rose Namajunas has been able to go on the Ultimate Fighter, seemingly have an entire UFC career, be completely forgotten, then show back up and defeat Angela Hill and still only be 23 years old? Wow, is she really only 23? Yep. Oh, just that checks out. That does. We did a little fact checking here. Yeah. That, that checks out. Rose Namajunas, Ben, returned and defeated uh, Angela Hill. Yeah, you know, the... The curtain jerker on Fox Sports One, uh, by technical submission. Um, and I think it was a fight that kind of reminded you that coming out of that season of The Ultimate Fighter, uh, Rose Namajunas was kind of thought to be the, the, the thing, the, the, the girl at, at 115 pounds. Like she was the one we were rolling out the red carpet for. I didn't Dana White kind of imply that she was the next Ronda Rousey. Uh, well, he just, he's should, gonna say some stuff. That's right. He probably should not have maybe said, said it in quite those terms. Uh, but then she ended up losing to Esparza, and, you know, now we've had two title changes of hands, and, and I guess all it takes is one win for, for Thug Rose to get back in the mix. Well, I will say, for one thing, the idea that, like, hey, she's back in the mix, and she might still become that person, again, only 23 years old, still very young, not a ton of MMA experience, uh, she still could become that that p- big powerful figure in the landscape yeah, there only had two ufc fights which makes the idea that she's had an entire ufc career and then was forgotten even more outlandish well, right? <laughs> she was on the reality show so you know there's there's like three fights on that i think that's part of it uh and you know a little bit of hype coming out of that show sure but i think that there's plenty of time for her to grow still you don't we haven't seen exactly where she's going to go uh and she is somebody worth getting excited about but also i think that division uh, is one right now where it's still in kind of a primordial phase in the UFC where you could win one or two and it suddenly puts you on a map in a really big way and who knows where you go from there. But also I do think that this was a 
a fight that she was supposed to win. Right, yeah. Uh, and definitely, once again, reminded us that while Angela Hill had had maybe surprising success from the Ultimate Fighter and then into the UFC, still definitely a work in progress as primarily a striker who uh, does not have uh, the greatest ground skills in the world. Uh, Rose Namajunas already up to number four in the strawweight division. So she is right there knocking on the door. Oh, yes. Those reliable UFC rankings. Well, if she gets a, a title shot, she'll rock it right all the way up to the top. All they have to do is book her a title shot. Yep. She'll start moving up. Uh, last question this week comes to us from, this is, this is a self-descriptor Gil, here, the fucking fantastic Suzanne Davis. Wait a minute. She just put the the fucking fantastic in front of her name. She has, in essence, given herself a nickname. I don't know about this, Suzanne. I don't know. Well, we should point out that Suzanne does have some political capital here she does. on the Co-Main Event Podcast for sending us those Bellator shirts. And if you don't follow Suzanne Davis on Twitter, you really should, uh, if only for the series of MMA spreadsheets. Which, come on, you, you aren't going to make those spreadsheets. No way. Somebody has she to. She does good work with the spreadsheets. She writes, man... What the fuck is up with these damn referees, their point deductions, and their wacky restarting the fight standing? How is this actually getting worse? And then she writes, confabulate. Come on now. With a bonus question that says, was there anything less useful than Mark Ratner's explanation of whatever that was that happened during the Juliana Pena-Jessica I fight? I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> okay, obviously what we're talking about here is the moment where... Uh, Juliana Pena has Jessica I down. She's in side control and Jessica I holds onto her head with her hand and brings up a knee, hits her square in the face with it when they're both down on the ground. Illegal knee to the head of a downed opponent. Now, I thought that the referee was on track here when he immediately stopped it, got in there and took the point away from Jessica I. That's what you should do. Like, that's, she broke the rule, and people can say, like, oh, it was accidental. I don't mean, first of all, I don't see how that was accidental. There was nothing else for her to knee there other than her head. And it, it's not even the thing where if you bring up the knee on the other side, you could at least say, like, oh, well, I was defending against the person moving to mount. But no, you can't really do that as well when you're bringing up that other knee just square into her head. You had to know. And you're holding onto her head, so you know where her head is. You're holding it in place. She had to know that's what she was doing there. And even if it was accidental in a situation like that, I don't really care. We went over the rules in the dressing room. You do this for a living. You know the damn rules. You broke the rules. We can't just say, like, all right, you get a free one. Everyone gets a free foul. Use it wisely, but not too wisely to the point where you knock the person out and get disqualified. So I'm all for the point deduction. However, if you then stand them up on their feet, you've done just guy a favor. In that sense, you've rewarded her for the foul. So that does make no sense. Do you Are you familiar with the viral video from a few years ago where Carl Lewis was trying to sing the national anthem some, at some sporting event and he screws it up super bad? No. And after the first line, he says into the mic, uh-oh. <laughs> no. Uh, that is the, the what I say to myself in my head whenever I see that there's an off-brand referee refing a fight in the UFC. And at this event, which was in Texas, which is kind of an off-brand athletic state to begin with for the combat sports, that that happened quite a bit. There were some off-brand referees here. They, we, it wasn't all Herb Dean or Tan Dan Mergliata. Uh, you had some uh, some generic brand referees. So you're kind of an elitist when it comes to the referee. If you don't, you want to. That is a hard job, man. I don't <laughs> want a second stringer out there, especially if I'm one of these people in the fight. 
Chad Dundas walking around looking at the labels, being like, is this, is this a Perry Ellis or a Calvin Klein style referee? Looking, looking out the corner of my eye at Frank Solis or whoever those <laughs> referees were. No, okay. Uh, I mean, also though, I think that the fan fucking tastic Suzanne Davis, whoever she wants to be called now, uh, does make a good point about the UFC has started that thing a few months ago of miking up Mark Ratner to, talk about regulatory issues the way that the nfl will do where they will have or you know the networks that broadcast the nfl since that sport works differently well they'll have some kind of like referee officials rules expert get on the mic and explain complex rules things and it just never works as well for one thing because usually the rules are not that complicated for another thing because they're seldom being followed uh, when we have these restarts, as you've pointed out before, one of the things that makes it advantageous to cheat in MMA is that everybody always just seems to want to get the fight going again as soon as possible. They don't really want to take the time to sort it out and see what they should really do here, which leads to some screw-ups. And bless Mark Ratner, you know, usually it's just him being like, yep, that guy got kicked in the groin. He's going to get a few minutes, and then we'll probably restart. Has there been an instance where they brought, and I, you know, everyone likes Mark Ratner, but like, has there been an instance when they bring him in on the broadcast and, and he like passed along like a nugget of wisdom? I don't recall one. I feel like every time they bring him on, it's kind of like, yeah, well, he got kicked in the, yeah, in the well. balls. We're going to. I mean, some of that is just the situations right. just don't lend themselves where we really need a detailed analysis of what the rules say. I mean, the only time I think you really need him is to point out, okay, if it got stopped here, we'd go to the cards. If we got stopped here, it's too early. It would just be a no, no decision. So. Uh, other than that, I don't think there's a whole lot for him to do. I think it's one of those things that gives you the the air of like NFL esque legitimacy, but without being like practically necessary. Yeah, I don't know that I feel like it's a great idea to try to add more bells and whistles to the UFC broadcast, like the broadcast portion of the show. I feel like that's just courting disaster, or at least courting an, an underwhelming performance. You think we should be removing bells and whistles? Thanks. Just. There, no sound. There are some bells that I would like to see removed. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just leave it at that. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, or concerns for the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Thursday uh, when we're not recording the podcast. And usually there are a lot of them since news in this sport always seems to break on Tuesday morning. So sign up for that. It's quick. It's fun. It's funny. You'll like it. If you don't like it, you can always just unscribe, unsubscribe the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Uh, but for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Round one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them where to look on the internet. Well, Chad, you get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at MyUSATrainer.com. That's MyUSATrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See MyUSATrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, I felt like a lot of the wind had come out of the sails of the UFC 192 main event where Daniel Cormier was going to fight Alexander Gustafson in the first defense of his UFC light heavyweight championship. You know, if we had had reason to believe that John Jones was going to be absent for a long time or we had reason to believe that perhaps his entire MMA fighting career was in jeopardy, then Cormier against Gustafson might have been an opportunity for the light heavyweight division to kind of step out of his shadow and move off in its own direction and prove that it not only could a relatively shallow division uh, survive, but maybe even thrive without its most dominant champion. When he shows up on Tuesday morning in Albuquerque District Court and the folksy ass district court judge uh, lets him off with 18 months of, oh wait, I'm sorry, up to 18 months of supervised probation uh, and no fine at all, BT dubs my hashtag expert legal analysis of months ago spot on so i will be <laughs> you cheated by marrying a, a lawyer signed uh you were right card from you because i remember when i said that he was going to get off almost scot-free you just looked incredulous you were like well let's just wait for the legal system to play out captain america over that's, here that's no this sounds like a just picture perfect recreation of what happened pretty sure that's, that's i'm gonna go back and close. listen to the tapes that's very close in any case, uh, Cormier versus Gustafson kind of turned into a glorified number one contender fight, really, after we found out that John Jones can probably return to the UFC anytime he wants. But Cormier and Gustafson went out there and had a crackerjack fight anyway, and I would say for that 25 minutes from bell to bell, kind of succeeded in, in making us at least partway forget about John Jones's absence. Uh, as soon as it was over, I think we reflected on that again. We can talk about that a little bit here, but let's just talk about the fight to, to, to lead in. Obviously another instance where Gustafson pushes the UFC light heavyweight champion to the limit and comes up empty. Uh, who were you most impressed by Ben Alexander Gustafson's ability to, uh, maybe outfight the odds again or Daniel Cormier's ability to marshal the troops and, and tuck this one away after a tough second round and after a third round where it looked like, uh, he was pretty close to getting stopped. Yeah. I, and that's impressive stuff from both guys in different ways. And as long as we're going back and looking at the tapes, I want to point out that I said, depending on how this fight went, there might be some revisionist history stuff going on with our perception of Gustafson and what that means for his first fight uh, with, with John Jones yeah. there. And I think that that's kind of what's going to happen here because he goes out there against Cormier and really makes it a battle all five rounds. And except for when it looks like it's coming down to the fifth round and man, you really got to go get it. And that's when... He just kind of doesn't. He, he, he doesn't quite have that final push there. Uh, but for the first four rounds looks awesome, way better than we expected. That's almost exactly what happened when he fought John Jones. And afterwards we heard the stuff. Oh, maybe John Jones didn't take that one seriously. And maybe, uh, that's why Guffs doesn't look better than he really was. But I think now the, you see him against Cormier and you start to think 
this guy clearly is an awesome fighter, and it sucks that the way that comes out is that he makes other people who fight him have to be even more awesome to beat him. And they are, and they, they come out looking great and also beat up, but... He is the guy who keeps going out there, pushing people to new heights, really, and coming away the loser. you got to feel bad for him. Yeah, this has to be a, a terribly tough loss for him. I know that after the first, what was it, or it was the Anthony Johnson loss. So really, he lost to John Jones, and then he got knocked down in a number one contender fight. Then he loses to uh, Daniel Cormier, obviously not all right in a row, but still, the, like the last three very high-profile fights he's had. He's come out the loser. Um, he said in the wake of the Anthony Johnson loss, he told a Swedish uh, language uh, media outlet that he was thinking about retiring. So I don't know how serious that was or if it was just, you know, the hangover of that loss. But you would think to go out there in a second title fight and put on almost exactly the same uh, level of performance that you put on in the first title fight uh, and come out a loser again, probably emotionally difficult yeah. for Tall Al to to handle. Yeah, and I, you're right, though, that I think when you saw how this fight looked like it was going early on, Cormier got that, that awesome big slam on Gustafson yeah. early on, and he, he makes really good adjustments as that fight goes on. And then ends up, like you said, almost like when he dropped Cormier there with the knee and he follows up uh, with with an uppercut, I believe it was, and Cormier kind of collapsed there, and you thought, okay, this looks like it could be it. And that, I think, was where Cormier really proved that uh, we already knew the guy had a chin yeah. right after that that Anthony Johnson fight. But this is one of those where I think you could see uh, a lot of it was just, for one thing, muscle memory, because he probably did not know exactly what was going on in there, but... Uh, Cormier is, is not gonna go away easily no matter who he fights. That, that's a guy who, there's no question about how badly he wants it. And when they're both sitting there in one of those classic fight cliche moments, at, at the end of the fourth round, they're both on their stools, and both of their corners are basically telling them, you gotta get this round. Here, we're, the last round, we don't know exactly what the scores look like, you gotta go out there and get it. And Cormier went out there and got it. And Gustafson, I think, again, just came up, like, just didn't have that last little push in the final round, and it cost him. Yeah, and I think clearly from Daniel Cormier's background as an Olympic wrestler and a lot of the adversity that he's overcome in his life, he seems like a dude where if you had one round where the chips were down, he would be a pretty high pick to to send a guy out there yeah. to fight that, you know, a single five-minute round where everything was on the line. Um, well, did you feel like the running away hurt Alexander Gustafson in the eyes of the judges? It I mean, never helps. When I was watching this fight, I was thinking, man, if, if Nick Diaz was out there, especially when the fight appeared to be on the line, and I, you know, it seemed like Alexander Gustafson would have a chance to win the decision, I was thinking, man, if Nick Diaz was out there and, and this guy was running away from him like that, people would be just freaking out about it online. Obviously, he would be drawing attention to it with his hand gestures that's as right. well. He definitely would. Uh, so like, I don't think that that hurt Alexander, Gu or I don't think that that helped Alexander Gustafson and, and Cormier said as much at the post fight, uh, press conference. What did you think about Daniel Cormier's game plan here? Did, was this odd to you? Like, obviously Gustafson is an elusive dude and is, is a hard guy to get your hands on and take him down. And, and like you said, Cormier had that body slam in the first minute of the fight. And after that, it seemed like he couldn't quite corral him to the extent that he wanted to. Did a lot of good work in the clinch. Uh, but didn't really go after that takedown as doggedly as he might have. And I thought that that, 
I don't know if it allowed Alexander Gustafson to set the pace so much, but it definitely like you had Daniel Cormier out there trying to engage Alexander Gustafson uh, in a Gustafson style fight. Right. I, th- I thought that was a little strange. Right. But I do think like the same reason Gustafson wants to jog away from him there is to get the fight back in a range he's more comfortable with. And Cormier was doing a good job of eliminating that middle range there and getting right up in his face to where he could work those uppercuts in the clinch. And it was surprising, I thought, that of all the good adjustments that Gustafson made in that fight, he did not really come up with an answer for that. He still kept getting stuck there and kept getting tagged there a lot uh, and couldn't really seem to figure out what to do there. Maybe he felt like he should have been able to, to do more there and so was reluctant to just avoid it altogether. But like down the stretch where you could hear Cormier's corner calling for him to get a takedown and they're even telling him, you know, okay, go out this round and, and get a takedown. And then you go to, to uh, Gustafson's corner and they're telling him he's going to try to take you down. And that made me wonder if Cormier had maybe felt it earlier in the fight that, look, this guy's going to be tough to take down. Uh, if I go for takedowns and I don't get them, not only do I expend a lot of energy and give him an opening to, to come back at something, but it, it looks bad if we're going to the scorecards for me to be trying and, and failing to get takedowns. And I think maybe he made the right call there if he didn't feel like he had that. Uh, it was to, to keep, to keep going where he had found success before, uh, getting into that, that range right up in his face and working those uppercuts. Uh, but I also think that, uh, when you, when you get into a situation like that where, he a couple times you could see would try that like pulling his head down trying to to overhook his head there and and pull him down into kind of that big brother style wrestler uh transition into a takedown and you're like you do realize this guy's six five right that's just not going to work as well there are some times where you could see it's like okay cormier is doing the stuff that would work on a dude cormier's size and it, a lot of that stuff, and I think it's the same thing that he found against John Jones, a lot of that stuff does not work against a dude who has uh, that much height and, and reach and those, those long limbs, especially for Cormier who loves the single legs and, and chains stuff off of that. I think it kind of changes the game up a little bit. But I do think he made better adjustments in this fight, which makes me curious to see how he'll do against John Jones. And I think that's one of the takeaways here. You told me before Cormier is going to fight John Jones again. I tell you, well, John Jones wins again. Uh, and after seeing this one, I'm not prepared to pick Cormier outright, but I am prepared to say that I'm a little more interested in it. Really? Yeah. Huh. Weird. You're not. No, I think you, you think it goes the, exactly the same. Yeah, I do. I think it goes pretty much exactly the same. I, I, I watched this fight. My takeaway was this is an awesome fight going to end up on a lot of fight of the year ballots. I don't know that it's going to win that award, but you know, you can't complain about the, about the fight. Both those guys went out there and, and poured their hearts into it. Uh, but I came away not as impressed with either guy in, in terms of updating their chances against John Jones. I feel like you saw the same Daniel Cormier that you saw against John Jones, except, uh, that he did, he was able to maybe put forth a slightly better effort, uh, in the fifth round against Gustafson. Uh, but I didn't see anything that made me think like, oh, okay, well. I mean, there's going to be a lot of wild cards in this fight if it's the next one. John Jones returns from this suspension. We won't really know where his head's at or uh-huh. if he'll be rusty, et cetera, et cetera. But like, if you had this, if you had that fight in a vacuum and it was just the two, the two fighters going at it, I don't think I saw anything from Cormier that made me think he was, he had improved so much that he is going to win. Well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. I'm not saying he's going to win necessarily, but I'm saying uh, seeing the way he performed in this fight makes me more excited to see him well, go at it again with John Jones. I mean, Jones. shit, I'm not going to complain about it. I'll watch those guys fight every day for the rest of my life. That, that's I got no problem with that. I just I wouldn't pick him. I don't think he's going to win. 
If we, and he, let's, let's face it, if he won, that'd be like the greatest thing of all time, because then we'd, we'd do it again, brother. <laughs> then we'd get into a trilogy-type situation. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that, because I do think uh, when you got one guy running around with his shirtless Instagram uh, post, you start to wonder about some of the X factors that could come to play. But I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about we'll that talk later about on. We'll talk about that more in, in, in round number three, but I agree with you. That was unsettling. Uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw this part, but at the end of UFC 192, we saw the the promo, the extended promo for the Ronda Rousey-Holly Holm women's bantamweight title fight. And... First of all, I got to give the UFC credit for trying something a little different, being willing to put a little something into production value and tell a story, even if, you know, you could, as long as you're not doing the same old thing of just like, this person is the best, has the best chance in the world to knock off the best fighter in the world, you know, then already you've got my attention. You're just doing something new. You're doing something different. I was into it for the most part, although, as my wife pointed out, maybe it doesn't make sense for Ronda Rousey to be depicted as an 11-year-old girl, like, seeing judo for the first time as she walks down the street, like, looking through the plate glass window of a storefront when her mom was a damn world champion. She probably would have heard of judo before then. Uh, but I was into it. I was really impressed with they even got, like, little girl actors who kind of looked like Ronda Rousey, pull off a lot of cool stuff there, and then when they get to the... The climactic Ronda Rousey Holly Holmes showdown in the cage. There's a fake Herb Dean. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? A fake Herb Dean. Fake Herb Dean. You can't spend the money and get the real. They got Ronda Rousey's mom in this thing, and you can't get the real Herb Dean. You can't tell me his his appearance fee was that much. You couldn't just go the little extra mile. You had to send in a counterfeit Herb Dean. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding? Well, Herb Dean probably has his SAG card because he's been in, uh, you know, never back down one through eight or whatever. So he's probably union, Screen Actors Guild. They probably didn't want to pony up whatever the the SAG minimum is to have Herb Dean out there. You know, I, I gave you Whereas shit for your comment U, about off-brand U, refs, but here's one. Give me the name brand. Give me Herb Dean, baby. <laughs> Those. Meanwhile, the UFC fighters. They got to show up to film those commercials, probably for free. Uh, man, this, this, today it happened, in fact. Uh, Cher, world renowned singer slash actress slash star of the film Moonstruck, tweeted her support for Nick Diaz and, and told the Nevada State Athletic Commission to, to get off their duffs and rescind his five year suspension. Well, if Cher did it, I'm sure they'll they'll listen now, right? I feel like all I have to say after that description is, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Cher is out here stumping for Nick Diaz. Cher. Yep. That Cher. Yep, Cher. Huh. From Sonny and Cher. Okay. I got you, babe. Yeah. Cher. All right. Maybe a big, big MMA fan. Or just a big Nick Diaz fan. She's on, Cher is on social media. Cher. Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, the weight cut did not go so great for steakhouse owner Johnny Hendricks. Oh, man. I knew that was coming. Know what I'm saying? 
Does that make sense? Does that makes any sense? But see, initially, when I heard that Johnny Hendricks had had a problem during his weight cut, had to go to the hospital, the bout was off, and I had a, the total Hendricks voice, all man, reaction to it. And then when I read an article on MMAJunkie.com, wherein one of his coaches explained you know, what happened, how they found themselves in this sad state of affairs, the sequence that he described, I wondered, how the hell did any of you think that this was going to go differently? It seemed like they were just describing a series of mistakes that they made that led to an inevitable conclusion, and yet they were somehow expressing some kind of surprise at them. For one thing, Johnny Hendricks comes into camp heavier than they had already decided he needed to be. They said they wanted him to start out camp at around 195, uh, and he came in over 200 pounds. I think they said maybe 205, 210, which probably means 215. And then the, as he's trying to cut his, his weight down, they get on a conference call with a nutritionist to talk about how it's going. A nutritionist who has never met Johnny Hendricks, according to this coach. And Hendricks says that he's feeling run down during camp because he's not eating as much, trying to get his weight down. And the nutritionist tells him to increase his calories, which according to this coach, maybe Hendricks took as a little bit too much justification to go out, to go a little crazy there. And then the weight didn't come down. Then they had to cut a bunch all at once around fight week. And he ends up having a medical issue, has to go to the emergency room. It just seems like just a carnival of errors were made there in a pretty big situation. Yeah. And let's face it, the timing couldn't have been any worse for Johnny Hendricks. You're already out there in the news kind of being a little sour about how you didn't get the number one contendership to fight Robbie Lawler again, that they went kind of over your head and gave that to Carlos Condit instead. Uh, you're still officially ranked the number one contender uh, by, as you mentioned, the ever-dependable UFC rankings. This was going to be a big spot for you. There's already kind of a, an internet meme out there about you being fat for a fighter in between camps, that there there's photos of you with with food in your hands. You own a damn steakhouse. That people can use in unflattering ways. This was this was not what you wanted from Johnny Hendricks and not what you wanted if you are Johnny Hendricks. And if your nickname is Big Rig. Especially since on, this dog. is the kind of thing that I feel like hangs around your reputation, even within the UFC, for a long time. Uh, when you go out there and you get a potential title eliminator canceled and pulled from the from the fight card. Uh, I think that there's a whole lot of potentially different stuff going on here. Like, uh, obviously, Johnny Hendricks didn't handle the weight cut well. And as you pointed out, kind of uh, like almost humorous that the uh, nutritionist tells him to increase his calories. And then he goes out and, and apparently eats a ton, you know, uh, that would seem to fall right into the jokes people would like to tell about Johnny Hendricks. But also, like, isn't it troubling to think that a dude who's about to be in a number one contender fight uh, feels like he doesn't want to spend the money, I guess, to have a nutritionist there in camp with him? We obviously know Johnny Hendricks uh, is involved in one of those contracts where he gives uh, – what's the team that he's with called? The uh, the wrestling-based team where he – Team Takedown. Yeah, Team Takedown. Like, he's he's still involved with them, right, that he gives – like 50% of his his earnings to them, and they basically uh, pay for his life. Um, so maybe he's trying to pinch pennies around the corners. Uh, but it still seems like in this sport, at this at this level, if you're in a number one contender fight and you know that you are a guy who struggles with his weight, like it's kind of sad that like that dude doesn't fully have 
the budget maybe to have a nutritionist there. And I bet also kind of in the back of, of your mind, if you're Johnny Hendricks, you have that wrestling mentality where you probably think it's cool, man. It's cool. I'll just cut this 20 pounds the week of the fight. I'll just suck it up. Just suck it up and get it Which done. Clearly uh, sometimes gets guys in trouble. Uh, Especially as they get older and they're not like 19 year olds anymore, uh, making way for college wrestling meet. Maybe you can't do that forever. And, you know, I mean, the other thing that's floating around, which I guess floats around all these fights, is that the guys are cutting a lot of weight, man. And that's, yes. it's just not healthy. No, it's not. Especially over the long term like this. I think you start to see these problems. But I do think you're right because I saw uh, Tyron Woodley talking about how much money that he might spend on an average camp where it could be thirty, forty, or $50,000. And you don't really think about that that much, especially when you look at the fighter payouts and – I think uh, it was uh, the UFC fight night in Japan where I was making a comment on Twitter about when you see the Reebok payouts that guys like Josh Barnett and Roy Nelson got. Where I think they got ten grand each, you know, for the main event, and that's just not much money for those guys. And somebody was like, "Oh, look at how much Josh Barnett gets to show and win." But yeah, you don't think about stuff. One thing, you know, just like taxes, and, and especially if you're fighting in Japan and you're fighting overseas and might have to pay taxes in a couple different places, but then also how much money you have to spend to properly prepare, maybe not guys like Josh Barnett and Roy Nelson so much with nutritionists, but how much money you have to, to spend to really prepare like a pro athlete when it's all on you, when you're just your own camp, basically, and you have to figure that stuff out. Uh, and we, in this sport, we have this kind of like hypocrisy about stuff like that we want them to be professionals and to do all the stuff that pro athletes do we expect them to do that we hold them to that standard and yet they're not really compensated like that in most situations and it sucks yeah it's uh, the thing that sucks worst of all is how bad they get killed you know when the but in the in like not necessarily by the media but by fans on social media uh, when stuff like this happens and, and, you know, clearly Johnny Anders has to take responsibility for it. He sh- signed on to have a 170 pound, uh, number one contender fight and then had to pull out of it because of weight. But at the same time, it's, it's, it, it's never as clean, clear cut as you would, you would like to think. It's, it's never, uh, a situation where, where you feel like, uh, well, this guy just dropped the ball or whatever. Like there's always extenuating circumstances. Um, let's talk about Tyron Woodley a little bit. It's been floated out there. Maybe he would get the next title shot. He would be the number one contender, uh, after Robbie Lawler fights, uh, Carlos Condit. Um, which I guess is, is one way to go with it since, since, uh, Woodley has that injury victory over Condit already. Uh, but again, it's a situation where nobody likes it if a guy is going to be the number one contender for essentially not winning a fight. Yeah. Well, and we also, I think at first, we heard about it via Twitter where it was like Kevin Aioli saying, Oh, I talked to Dana White. He says Tyron Woodley gets the next title shot, which already we should know by now that that doesn't necessarily mean anything. The, the UFC can come out there and promise you something on the eyes of their children. And it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to happen. We've all seen how that goes. But then later when Dana White got on Fox Sports one and was talking to Megan O'Leary and he was already kind of walking that one back and saying like, well, he's next in line, but we'll see how it goes. And, that could mean anything at this point. You just, you kind of have to wait and see now. So it seems like the UFC is just making it, leaving themselves the potential to do absolutely anything at welterweight. And I can see how some people might look at this situation and wonder why Tyron Woodley gets the title shot when you, not only this where he doesn't fight 
and comes away with a, a promise for a title shot. But before this, he fought Kelvin Gastelum, who also had some weight issues and, as you might recall, showed up in the cage on fight night looking like he wanted to be anywhere else, uh, looking like he was in the middle of a bad dream and did not fight great. And Tyron Woodley beat him by a split decision. Before that, he knocked out Dong Hyung Kim, which was legit just going out there and starching a dude. Uh, and then he had that decision lost to Roy McDonald. And before that was where he beat Carlos Condit via knee injury. And granted, he seemed to be kind of winning that fight in the brief period that that happened before Carlos Condit's knee blew out. But you could, if you wanted to be a real jerk about it, through no fault of Tyron Woodley's own, you could go back and start picking apart uh, some of his recent wins that have got him to be the, and recent non-participation even, that got him to be the top number one welterweight contender and say, yeah, I don't know about this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a good situation. It's not what you want to see happen. Although when you consider, uh, what's happening at, in the welterweight title picture right now, it's, I don't know that there are a ton of options. You, you, you think about 170 pounds as being a really deep division, but if Johnny Hendricks is, is out of the running for the moment and you have to assume that he is until, uh, he can prove that he comes in and, and makes the 170 pound limit, uh, you know, uh, reliably. You have Rory McDonald who just lost to Robbie Lawler and, and Woodley's ranked number three and Carlos Condit's ranked number four who's about to get a shot at the title. And after that, you know, you got guys like Matt Brown who had back to back losses and then, uh, got one win over the Dirty Bird. Tim Means, I don't know if you want to catapult him up to number one contender or title eliminary, eliminator status. And, and, you know, after that, it's, it's, Kind of a precipitous drop off, man. You got Dun Young Kim and, and Steven Thompson and Tarek Safadine and Rick Story and guys like that. But like, if you're talking about guys that we all kind of concede are elite 170 pound fighters, you're kind of, uh, kind of out of them right now. If, if Hendricks is, uh, is off the table and, and Connett's about to fight for the title, Woodley could be, you know, the only guy hanging around. That's not to say he's not going to have to have another fight, but. If you are in the position that you need to name a number one contender, which for whatever reason the UFC likes to put itself in that situation, I'm not sure why. I don't know who else you would say besides Woodley at this point. Maybe a good time for Sage Northcutt to go up and wait is what you're saying? Yeah, yes. Maybe maybe uh, Ben Henderson, right? Yeah. He's out there offering to fight on 24 hours notice. There you go. Maybe so. the two of them hit up some uh, church brunches <laughs> and uh, 170 Right over the horizon. Right. How about a fight pass series where Sage Northcutt and Ben Henderson review church brunches together? Okay. All right. How about this? A fight pass series where Sage Northcutt and Benson Henderson try out different religious faiths. <laughs> Just for like a week or so, like one per episode. Like here's one where they'll go and, and try and be Buddhists. Yeah. Where does Nick the Tooth come into this? If you throw him in there, I'm sold. <laughs> oh, he actually runs a, a, a Episcopalian uh, storefront sure. down yes. there he can in be their uh, guru. East Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, it was yours truly, me, several months ago on this show, 
who in the wake of John Jones's indefinite suspension by the UFC and the notion that the next 205 pound title defense might be Daniel Cormier against Ryan Bader, who said that this really made us all realize how important John Jones was because without him, the division seemed sort of like a wasteland. And now I have to admit some months later, I'm actually starting to feel a little bit bad for Ryan Bader because I don't know what the guy is going to have to do to get any damn respect around here. I mean, I think he's a guy that we all look at and, and maybe because he's been around for a long time and we feel like we've seen what he's capable of. We don't necessarily think of him as being a number one contender type guy, but I felt like it was a little bit unfair both for the UFC president and anyone else to criticize him for not stopping Rashad Evans in their fight at UFC 192 because yeah, that's tough. This, I mean, this was not the most action-packed fight. It was also not a terrible fight. And Rashad Evans is a dude who, even though he's been out with injury for a couple of years, and we didn't really have uh, good tabs on what he was going to be like in this fight, that's a former champion and a guy who is notoriously difficult to put away. Yeah, you know how many times he's been put away? Like maybe twice. Once. By uh, Leota Machida? That's right. Wow, that's it? That's the only time? That's the only it. stoppage loss in his career? Uh, John Jones did not put him away. Jeez. Well. The the boy Roger Nog didn't put him away? <laughs> well, then I think we should all cut Ryan Dwayne Bader some slack here, man. Well, And also it seemed like part of Dana White's criticism was he came in there against a Rashad Evans who had been on a you know two-year layoff or whatever it was and seemed like his timing was a little off, wasn't quite as, as fierce as he usually is, and he couldn't put him away, which then means, so you put Ryan Bader into a really tough situation because you put him up against Rashad Evans, who if he shows up looking like Rashad Evans is going to be a tough out for anybody. But then if he doesn't, if he just merely beats Rashad Evans via unanimous decision, the same thing John Jones did to him, then you're going to come away saying, well, because of the long layoff and that he didn't look as sharp as he always looks, just beating him by decision is not that impressive. Damn. It's like Ryan Bader was kind of set up to fail in a way then, was he not? Yeah. And the dude's got five wins in a row now. Uh, you know, the last three over Ovin St. Prue, Phil Davis and Rashad Evans. That's nothing, nothing to sneeze at, man. Like, that's a good run at light heavyweight. Like, that would earn almost anybody a, a shot at the title. Now, obviously, the wild card here is that you have the man that we all consider to be the once in future, probably, light heavyweight champion, seemingly on the verge of a return. John Jones's uh, complicated legal snarl in New Mexico tied itself up in a neat little bow. Uh, this week, and and all it's going to take is for the UFC to put him back on active duty, and we all believe that he'll come in and uh, fight Daniel Cormier in a rematch for the the title, which you know leaves Ryan Bader a little bit in a tough spot. He said he wanted to maybe rematch Glover Teixeira if he doesn't get that number one contender spot, which I guess would be fine, be all right with me. Uh, but it does seem like if things break the way we think that they're going to, he's going to end up sitting on the bench while, while John Jones goes out there and, and gets the fight we all think John Jones is going to get. Well, and if you had told me that, hold up, we're about to make Ryan Bader into a sympathetic character, I would have said, ain't no way. Right, exactly. And here it's happening. Yes. This is the only Before way it could happen. our very eyes. Yeah. Darth Bader. <laughs> Suddenly... Seems like he deserves a little bit better break. And this is my favorite Bader that we've seen, the Bader with a chip on his shoulder. 
coming out there talking about like he's Rodney Dangerfield getting no respect. That seems like the most likable Bader. And especially if you tell him, okay, you're not going to get the title shot after that because we're probably just going to bring back the old champion and have that thing go on again. And his response is, cool, I'll fight this, I'll fight the last dude to beat me and not really complain or whine too much about it, then that makes him more likable, I think. And if he does go out there and beat Glover Teixeira, and remember, he got knocked out in that one, but he kind of rocked Glover yeah, there and then he, got a little reckless himself. He got knocked out because he overextended himself because he thought he was about to win. Right. Then, But if he goes out there and he does manage to get that win back, which, by the way, I hate when fighters talk about it like that. Like, if you beat the guy who beat you, that somehow you've you've erased that loss. Yeah, you don't actually get that win back. No, you're one and one at that point. In you're fact, just kind of on a draw. I, be- I believe the cliche is that you can't take that away from the other. That's guy. right. Uh, but if he does go out there and he beats Glover Teixeira, then you look at his record recently, where he's beaten former UFC light heavyweight champion Rashad Evans, Bellator tournament winner Bill Davis, uh, Ovin Saint Prue. Tennessee Volunteers football Hall of Famer he from was an All American or a number one draft choice or something. Uh, maybe the greatest football player to ever come out of the University of Tennessee, based on a promo I uh, saw once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then beats Glover Teixeira, who just beat Ovin St. Pru. Uh, suddenly Ryan Bader can do the like looking around from atop a heap of of broken bodies thing, going, "Who else do you want me to beat before you give me my shot?" Yeah, you would think if he gets one more win, then he has to be up next for whoever comes out of this assumed Daniel Cormier versus John Jones fight. Uh, which let's talk about that for a minute because, you know, John Jones's court appearance naturally was on Tuesday morning last week. So we just missed it with the podcast like we always do. But we covered uh, it in the Breakfast of Champions for subscribers. In the Breakfast of Champions newsletter for subscribers there. Uh, basically, John Jones showed up in court. Uh, he got lucked himself into a uh, a folksy cowboy style Albuquerque judge, and uh, got like the lightest possible slap on the wrist. Pled guilty to a uh, fourth degree felony of leaving the scene of an accident, but because I think this is how this works legally, because the judge chose not to adjudicate that he does not have a felony on his record, doesn't have a felony conviction on his record. Uh, and as long as he is able to complete that probation, which, again, the judge made it clear that his probation officer can end that probation at any time, that uh, we think he'll be, be to back in active duty with the UFC probably a lot sooner than that. Uh, but then he shows up on Instagram, right? Yeah. Still trolling. Yeah. Still doing the same exact stuff that he was doing before the hit-and-run accident in terms of the social media use, deletes the the uh, the video after he posts it, which is sort of his calling card at this point. Um, looking a little glassy-eyed, right, in the video. Maybe he was tired. Could have been very tired. He was up all night, uh, not doing drugs. <laughs> up, well, I mean, let's hope he was, yes, he was engaged in some serious magic, the gathering. He'd been up for a while. Or was soul-searching. Yes, he'd been he was up, up all night soul-searching. He'd been up soul-searching. Uh, how's this going to go, man, this whole return of John Jones thing? Because while he did essentially get off scot-free from from the court, uh, gets to keep his guns, which was a big point of contention for him, which tells you a lot about the dude, John Jones. Um, and I, I love when I get to see the reaction of like European and UK MMA fans when they're kind of following this stuff on Twitter. We're crazy over here when it comes to this guns, man. Yeah. You don't uh, even know. Made a special, even when they, even when his lawyer clearly thought that he was going to have a, a felony on his record, they made a special point to ask the judge if he could keep one gun. 
Like that was when John Jones sat down and was like, what is really important to me? What do I want to ask the judge? Let's get down to brass tacks here. Concession for. Yeah. One of the very first things that they came up with was that he gets to keep his gun. So there you go. Well, and uh, you want to imagine his negotiations with his lawyer. He was like, well, we should go in there and ask for five guns so that maybe we can come down to three. And his lawyer was like, look, John, I'm not going to send you out of here with no guns. Okay, I'm not a crazy person. So we'll just get you one gun, whichever is your greedy. favorite. Uh, okay, but <laughs> all, to give the others to the poor. All that said, you have to believe this is John Jones's last chance, right? If he fucks this up. I mean, well, and that's done, the thing right? when, when I was looking at the, the Instagram video and I was just like, please tell me we're not just going like you'd have to be crazy or have a very serious substance abuse problem. If we're just going to go back to doing the same stuff and follow that same path down to we know where exactly it leads. Also, as my wife pointed out, that video was the one where you're like, okay, somebody needs to take away John Jones's smartphone and tell him. You're going straight landline from now on, dog. And I'm talking like need to dial nine to get out of the building kind of landline. And when you do dial nine, somebody will come on and say, are you sure? Because it's you're just like, man, what there? We can't do this. We can't have learned nothing from this. Yes. This needs to be the point where John Jones kind of turns it around. Right. And. That's what it was supposed to be, right? Yeah, and that's why the emergence of the Instagram video, which, again, I guess there's no reason for us to think that he was drunk or on drugs or anything like that. But, like, even the fact that he would post and then delete that kind of weird Instagram video that soon after his court appearance, even without any sort of substance abuse, it was weird. Yes, weird. And it was weird. kind of jarring, and I, I don't... I don't know, and man. In fairness, if we're going to turn around here and and take a more generous view, John Jones has always been a little bit of a weird dude, yep. which we yep. used to chalk up to like, well, he also seems to be some kind of MMA preternatural genius. So maybe that's just you 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 get something like that, and you also end up being a weird dude. Like that's just kind of how that lottery works. Okay, um, but yeah. It did seem like when you contrast that with what we heard just earlier where he released a statement about how very truly sorry he is for all of this and how what a humbling experience all of this stuff has been. And then it, on social media anyway, when it seems like he is left to his own devices and doesn't have somebody to craft the statement and it's just a matter of him hitting send on it, it looks like exactly the same dude that we saw before. That's what makes you wonder. Yeah, it does. Initial indication is that we are headed back, right back into the same, like we've hit repeat on the whole thing, which is kind of troubling. Let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Um, Ben, I don't know if you, you probably did. You noticed who the sponsor of this UFC 192 was, right? They sponsored the previously Harley Davidson prep point. And they sponsored the main event and co-main event. I believe it was Xbox. It was a Halo 5 exclusively from Xbox One. And I'm sure that you remember which UFC fighter in the UFC used to have an Xbox sponsorship. Would that be Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson? That would be the guy. And I'm sure that you noticed on Instagram a couple weeks ago that Demetrius Johnson returned from his trip to Japan, discovered that his wife had bought him a new gaming console and was excited about it and posted about it on his Instagram account and that that gaming console was a Sony PlayStation, right? PS4. The PS4. So I guess I'm just saying... It seems like not only did the UFC take away Demetrius Johnson's ability to be sponsored by Xbox, 
but maybe the company also took that sponsorship for itself? Question mark? Dot, dot, dot. That's cold, man. That is some cold shit. I'm just saying. Just saying. One added benefit to the Reebok deal is that companies can no longer get in the UFC via paying fighters. Why don't you just pay us instead? Interesting. It's weird how that happens. Yeah. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you remember how Tito Ortiz got submitted by Liam Do McGeary? I? Of course, yes. In that Bellator light heavyweight title fight, and then set himself immediately to work on the mic, uh, propping up Liam McGeary, talking about how awesome he was and how he, he had his best training camp ever and had no excuse for this fight. Liam McGeary was just that good, and it seemed like, oh, Maybe Tito Ortiz has turned over a new leaf. No cracked skull for this one. Yep, I'm excited for this new Tito. Uh, and then I I see uh, after a radio interview, uh, Tito Ortiz talking about his fight with Liam McGeary saying, the first little exchange and then going for the takedown, I went for his legs and his legs felt, I don't want to say slippery, but just super soft. Aww. I just let my arms slide up the side of him and I had to reshoot again. A little baby lotion or lotion. He uses a lot of lotion on his legs. Everybody, I mean, not everybody, but most people put lotion on themselves. So maybe he put a lot of lotion on prior. He caught me in a submission. He was the better man. I'm just saying, even when Tito Ortiz, it seems like, has told himself he's not going to make excuses still kind of gets a little excuse-ish. Excuse-y there. Yeah. Just on the borders of an excuse. Yeah, it's an excuse-ass. Excuse poll. Yeah. Excuse-ish. Whew. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to talk about something. I don't know what. Nothing going on, right? No we'll make UFC up something. Event. Maybe we'll, make we'll do a uh, All Questions Considered. Maybe we will. Follow us on Twitter. We'll let you know about that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So the person applying the hand job to yes. the guy on the couch. Yep. Female person. Would you describe that person as somebody who, who did seem like they would be given a hand job on the couch? Yes. Yes. Well, you didn't have to think about that. Yeah, well, given what we, we came to know about her over the course of the night. I mean, she was a much younger and more normal looking person than the hand job E. The hand job receiver.